we're still in 1 Peter chapter 1, so we haven't, we haven't scampered off too far. And uh, we're going to continue on reading. It started out with a bang. It, it, it uh, started out with such a, some wonderful promises from God and also some wonderful um, encouragement from the Lord. Now we're moving in to, uh, once again, some promises and some encouragement and some commands from God. I think we've been reminded already in the past two weeks reading through 1 Peter that our, our mindset should be more eternal uh, than, than it often has been and can be. So, far, so often we get caught up or distracted by the immediacy of everything else. What's going on right now? And often God is causing us to lift up our eyes and see what he sees. Causing us to look forward, to look to eternal things. Uh, causing us to look forward to his return. Thank God. We read that if, uh, last week or the week before. The importance of knowing that he is coming. And Peter goes on in his next letter and says, In the last days there will be some people who say, You guys have been saying Jesus is coming forever. I don't believe it anymore. He says scoffers will arise. But you know what? We're not going to be scoffers. We're going to be those that are excited. We're going to be those that carry on with what he left us here to do, right? Praise God. Because he's returning, I want him to come back and find that I'm doing what he's put me here to do, right? Yeah. Amen. So 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to uh, pick up in verse 13, which we did read last week, but we, we spent most of our time talking about the, the prophets of old and how the prophets of old did not realize that they were serving you, that they were speaking of our day. Number one, they were speaking of Jesus, the Messiah who was to come. But as you, if you've read Daniel, if you've read Ezekiel, you know that they were not just speaking of the Messiah, but even into our day, these last days to whom the end has come. And, and uh, we know, I don't know, I know that Peter said the last days started on the day of Pentecost. <laughs> so the last days have been going on for a while. But I think we're at the last of the last. And, and, you know, what kind of believers do we want to be? We want to be those that are awake, alive, and uh, ready. And, you know, looking forward to his return. Uh, but not, not, not forgetting what he put us here to do. And so we've got a task and we're going to get it done. First Peter chapter 1. Well, he's going to get it done, but he's going to use us. Thank God. First Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, because of these prophecies, because of these things that have been spoken, therefore, prepare your minds for action. We, told, we talked about this last week, that that literally meant somebody would, who had a long garment would gird, would gird up, the, it's, it says in the original Greek, gird up the loins of your mind. They would tie up their garment like this so they could either get to work, get to battle, or get to running. But they would, this was, this was not time to look good. This was time to, to be mobile, to get ready. So we're at that stage in, in our, in our uh, history where it's time to wake up. It's time to get ready. You know, we're going to gird up the loids of our minds. Prepare your minds for action. Thank God. You know, our minds used to be the problem. Maybe some of you still say my mind is the problem. Our minds used to be hostile to God. But the Bible tells us that we can renew our minds. That we can begin to, to, to allow God to work on our minds and, and to be washed by the water of the word. That, that our minds are being renewed to his reality. And, and God, just like your body, your body your body had all these urges and things before you got saved and even after that you had to overcome. But none of us here would deny that God wants us to use our bodies for his glory. Without your body, you couldn't do anything for the Lord, right? I mean, you need this body. 
God gave you this body. And so I know that sometimes it seems like a pain. I know that sometimes it seems rebellious. But thank God that I have a body that can serve the Lord. In the same way, your mind is not the enemy of God. Your mind is a tool. Your mind is a tool that God can use, but it has to be submitted to the Spirit. Because let's just admit something. Can we all just admit this right now? It shouldn't be too hard. God is way smarter than us. Way smarter. It's not even close. So, you know, just like a mosquito does not have the capability, or let's, let's make it even easier, just like your dog cannot plan your next vacation. Your dog has a brain, but your dog's brain is not capable of planning your next vacation. The best move your dog can make is say, my master knows how to plan a good vacation. I'm going to trust my master. Well, God's intellect is infinite. And thank God, you know what? He says we have the mind of Christ. He's calling us up to his level. He's not calling us stupid, but he's saying my ways are higher, my thoughts are higher, so now I'm going to show you how to think. And, and when we submit that to him, our minds are not the enemy. Our minds are the tool of the Holy Spirit. Our, your brain can be a very good thing. So what are we supposed to do? Prepare your minds for action. How easy is it to get distracted? You know, uh, when, when the scripture talks about the difference between night and day, he says that the, the, night's, the night's almost done. The day is here. The day is right at hand. So let's lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let's put on the armor of light. He says, you know, those that do their drinking, do their drinking at night. But come on, it's daytime. And so, you know, I know when the scripture says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. You might say, well, I haven't drunk since 1979, or I haven't been drunk since, since 2005, so that, that's not really an issue for me. But let me tell you something. I think that, yeah, you, should, you shouldn't be drunk with alcohol, but at the same time, I know people that haven't had a drop. They're not high, they're not drunk, and yet they're easily distracted by the things of life, and in a sense, are drunk, you know, in a sense, are are not, not awake to what's going on. And so he says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Now, I want to dispel something here. Let's just get rid of a myth. We're going to bust a myth today. I want to bust a myth that says sober is, is, has no joy in it. Sober is serious. And can we just say, I've been sober all my life, and I have a lot of fun. I, I haven't been drunk a day in my life, and I've had a lot of fun. Can we just understand now that he said a few verses earlier that we have joy inexpressible and full of glory. Sober does not mean you have to be a sour Christian. Doesn't mean you have to be a boring Christian. Sober means that you are not distracted. You're not asleep. You're not numb. You're not just wandering through life. You're awake to what God is doing. Be sober in spirit. Realize that those that are hearing, those that are listening, those that have their eyes open, they're not going to miss what God's doing. Be sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, here's an interesting thought. We have already received grace. We've received the grace of life. We've received the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And yet there is a grace to come, isn't there? When Christ returns, there's something even more. And he says, so that's what he's talking about at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You realize that Christ has been revealed to them. Christ has been revealed. Christ has been made known and manifest. They, they are familiar with Jesus. They love Jesus. Remember he said earlier, though you don't see him, you love him. And yet there is a, a, a revelation of Jesus that's still to come. Because the Bible tells us there's going to be a moment that we meet him 
And when we see him, we'll be changed, for we will see him as he is, and we'll be like him. Do you understand? We haven't really seen Jesus for all he is yet. We've seen glimpses. We've seen, we, I mean, we, we have been made of his fullness. We have all received. So he's not holding anything back. But the scripture tells us there'll be a moment when we see him just as he is and we'll be made like him. So there's a hope that, that's attached to that. And he says in verse 14, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. Now, lust means that you are carried away by just what your body craves by the things that you just feel like doing. He says, don't be conformed to the way you were before you knew better. See, nobody gets blamed for doing something before they know better. There, there is a responsibility to it. There is an account for it. There will be a judgment. But what he's saying is, you didn't know better, but now you do. Don't go to those former lusts. Instead, be like the Holy One who called you. Now, I want to just explain to you why that sentence is a, is, is a fun sentence. Can we just explain that for a minute? Do you know the word holy? And he's about to quote from the Old Testament where, where God said, be holy as I'm holy. You know why that is so strange is because in, in, in the Hebrew, holy, the word holiness doesn't simply mean perfect. Although we, we see there's perfection in it, there's, there's greatness in it. But if you really study out the word holy in the original Hebrew in the Old Testament, Holy means set apart, means different. So when God would say, I'm holy, he's saying, don't, come, don't, don't treat me or don't think of me like I'm just another person, like I'm a person that would make, he says things like, I'm not a man that I would lie. So when he says I'm holy, it means I am different. There is something different about me. I am separate. So in a way, he's saying, I, I, you know, I'm not like all of you people. I am different. I am above this. But at the same time, then he goes and turns around and says, so be like me. Isn't that crazy? God is just saying, I'm different. And we would say, well, you are always going to be different. There's no way we can be. I mean, yeah, you're just, you're God. We're not. Then he says, be holy like me. Be different with me. Be separate with me. Now, how could we do that? There's absolutely no way you could just choose to do that on your own. That only comes by the grace of God. That only comes through the power of God. You know, it is, it is a myth in Christianity that we pit grace and holiness against each other. For the grace of God makes us holy. The Bible says in Titus, the grace of God has appeared, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. And you can't be holy without the grace of God. Do you know when you try, it's just pure dead religion. It's legalism and it has no life in it and you will fail. But if you would let God work through you, if you would let him do what you can't do, the grace of God will compel a holiness in you that you never could have conjured up on your own. And so we first realize that he's calling us beloved. He's calling us sons and daughters. Your identity must come before your actions. Identity first, actions follow your identity, right? So if you think you're a dog, what will you do? You'll bark, you'll crawl around on your four, all fours. Why? Because you think you're a dog, you'll act like a dog, right? That's just simple. Now, I hope nobody here thinks they're a dog. 
But I doubt, you know, if we met somebody that thought they were a dog, I doubt they'd be walking around acting like everybody else and just saying, I'm a dog, but I'm a very intelligent dog. It just seems, seems very human. You'll never know. When someone thinks they're something else, they act like something else. And let me tell you, we were sinners. We were genuine, straight-up sinners. Rebels, dirty, we're all of that, every single one of us. But what does the Bible call us now? Do you notice that the Scripture over and over and over again calls you saints? Ones made holy. You are holy ones. Calls you holy, calls you beloved, calls you sons and daughters of the living God, calls you light. Ephesians 5 says you are light. Therefore, walk as children of light. Do you see the order? Here's what you are. You're light. Now, be who you are. So the word of God is a mirror, isn't it? James says it's like a mirror. It shows us who we are. And if we are hearers only and we don't do what we hear, because the word of God, when it's preached to us, it says this is who you are. And it says it's like somebody looking in a mirror and and seeing who they are. But if we walk away and we don't live out what we've just been told, this is who we are. We're like somebody who looked in a mirror, then walked away and forgot what they were. That's what James says. So what do we need to do with the word of God? Tonight, whatever you hear, God's going to speak some things to you through his word, and they're going to define you. They're going to show you who you are. And I've got to tell you, we have to be reprogrammed because the world's told us one thing, and we're learning another through the word of God. When we walk away from it, we're not going to forget what he said. We're going to live out who we are and show, so prove ourselves not to be forgetful but true hearers of the word. He says, he, the like the Holy One has called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Be different. Be weird. Be different. Be unique. And I'm not talking about unique like the world says. I'm saying following Jesus and being filled with his spirit is going to make you stand out a little bit. And, and, and I know a lot of us, we don't want to stand out, but it will. He says, Be like the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I love that. You will. You shall be holy as I am holy. Praise God. With the word of God comes the grace of God to get it done. I've said this so many times, but I'll say it again. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, and he called into that tomb, that wasn't a lecture that Lazarus just needed to get his act together and come out of the tomb. Lazarus, you're a bum. Your sisters are starving without you. You're supposed to be the guy that has the job. How dare you fall asleep? How dare you die on them? Now get your act together. Pull yourselves up by the bootstraps and come out of the grave. See, if that was the message, did Lazarus have any power to come back from the dead? No. But when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, the moment he spoke the command... There was power in that command. And that power in the command gave him the strength to do exactly what Jesus said to do, come out. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've ever looked up what happens, (laughs) I don't know what Lazarus had. I don't know how sick he was, but I know he was sick enough to die. But let me tell you, whatever whatever, whatever made him die, 
it got worse once he was dead. I'm, I mean, whatever, whatever killed him wasn't as bad as, as the process of nature taking over. By the time Jesus opened the tomb, was about to open the tombstone, his sister said, by this time he stinks. That's because there wasn't a lot of preserving going on. Maybe some spices to make him smell good, but he was not embalmed. So you got to know when you die, your body goes through the process of turning you back into dirt. Your organs break down. Your, I mean, your, your, your body begins to break down again. And so I'm, if he had just gotten healed right before he died, it would have been a lot less of a miracle than the man been dead on the fourth day. Stuff's got to get fixed. Stuff's got to get replaced. And this man, Lazarus, Jesus says to him, Lazarus, come forth. And, and, and he has no power to come back. But the word of God spoken to him is not just a command. It's an empowering. In the same sense, when Paul said to the man, stand up and walk, and it says he's never walked a day in his life, and he leapt to his feet. Do you know that man could have tried and tried to get up, but without strength coming to his legs, it wouldn't have done any good. So often we hear God's commands, and we treat them just as that, just like, just like somebody on the street telling us something, or just like our parents telling us something. But when God commands us to do something, he never just commands us. In his command is the empowering to do it. So if God called you to do something, he, by the act of calling you, is empowering you to get it done. So when he calls you to be holy, you don't have to try to be holy. There's, there's going to be diligence in it. There's going to be effort. But it's not your strength that's going to get done. When he calls you to be holy, he's providing the grace to be holy. Thank God, the power to be holy. So you couldn't kick this habit, you couldn't stop this. Well, you can now if you'll receive the word of God as the word of God. He says this, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, I love this because, now, you have to understand there's different types of fear, isn't there? There's a, there's a godly fear, which is a reverence for God, an honor for God, a, an awe of Him, a, putting Him above all things. He's the only one that matters. His opinion is the only one that counts. Then there is a fear that does not come from God, which causes you to stay away from God. We see it so clearly at the end of Hebrews when he talks about two different mountains. He says, you guys, we haven't come to Mount Sinai. And he begins to describe how in Mount Sinai, it was the old covenant, and these were sinful people. And he said, even hearing the voice of God made them scared. And they knew that if they even touched the mountain, or even if their animals touched the mountain where God was, they would die. He says, we haven't come to that mountain where you have to be scared and put distance between yourself and God because you're so sinful that an encounter with a holy God would kill you. Instead, he says, we've come, we have come. He's not saying we're coming someday. This is not future, this is present. We have come to Mount Zion. And he describes Mount Zion like this. He says, the Mount Zion, the city of the living God, 
He says there's saints there and we're part of it. He says it's the spirit of the, 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 the saints made righteous. He says that there is blood crying out, but it is the blood of Jesus which cries out better things than the blood of Abel. What does the blood of Abel cry out? You're guilty. You did this and you'll pay the price for it. But the blood of Jesus cries out, it's paid for. You're not guilty anymore and you can come, draw near. It says that's where the presence of God is. It talks about angels in, in feast clothes and angels in celebration clothes. They're getting ready for a party. This is where we've arrived. He doesn't say someday we'll get there. He's not talking about the sweet by and by. He's talking about the right here, right now, Mount Zion. So there's a difference because he goes on and says right at the end of that description, you can read it for yourselves in Hebrews, right at the end of the description, he says, therefore, let us worship God with fear and reverence. Oh, hang on. He talks about the fear that the people had in Mount Sinai, and it was not a fear that drew, drew you to God. It was a fear that pushed you away from God. But he says, that's not the fear we have. We're not, we're not terrified of God. We're not scared of God. We reverence him. And because we reverence him, it is, it is a reverence that draws us closer to God. It draws us to him and it causes us to be like him. And it causes us to take seriously, you know, like it says in Philippians, work out. It talks about that great salvation you've received. Now work it out with fear and with trembling. Now he's not saying you have to be scared all your life. But he says, you know, I mean, if I gave you a chest and I said, in this box is $100 million, and I want you to walk around all day holding this, you wouldn't just be like skipping around, tossing it around. Da, da, da. Hey, hey, I see some kids playing at the playground. You guys want to play with this for a while? No, you wouldn't. As soon as you're holding that box, you'd be, <laughs> this would be something big, right? Well, he talks about this treasure that's been placed in jars of clay like us. God has placed a treasure inside of us. He says this is a great salvation. And so he says, work it out. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says, work out your salvation. It's already there. Now let it come out and take it seriously. Then he says, for it is God. I love this. Because when we read that in itself, sometimes we think, well, I'm just going to try out. I just got to do my best. And he says, it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's not your work. It's not your strength. It's God's work in you. God is able to do this. You want to be a vessel of honor? You want to be somebody that God can use? Stop saying, am I able? And start saying, is God able? Because that's the real question. Am I able to submit to God? And is he able to make it happen? Absolutely. So here we see that there is a one who impartially judges. And he says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. Wow. Like silver or gold. Did you know you were bought back with something that's not going to fade? With something that's not going to go away? With precious blood. Wow. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now, why is it important that that blood does not fade? Well, as the old song says, that blood will never lose its power. I want to tell you, the blood of Jesus did not just work on you that moment you first gave your life to Jesus. 
that blood of Jesus is still working in your life. It is still working. It is still paying. It is still, I mean, the price has been fully paid. Jesus only has to die once. There's only one sacrifice, the Bible says. There doesn't need to be another. It was a perfect sacrifice. But the blood of Jesus is eternal, and it eternally it eternally has purchased us. It is eternally paid for his people. Now, that's a huge deal. Now, the response to that is not, well, okay, well, cool. Then I'm just going to go do whatever I want. The response to that is to say, wow, what a great salvation. How do I use this breath that God gave me? How do I use this life that he freely gave to me? Then he says this, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Wow who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks. He says, for you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. Now, this is a beautiful thing. He's saying what, what saved you, there is a seed that's been planted in your life. If you're truly born again tonight, there was a seed planted in you, and it can't fade, and you can't corrupt it. It is the incorruptible Word of God. Now, that, that seed in your life is, is there to produce perpetual life. It's eternal life in you, and it will perpetually produce good things in your life. When I say good things, I'm not talking about what the world's looking for. I'm talking about things that are better than that. I'm talking about what God's looking for. And it will perpetually make you more like him. But you have to choose. See, I'm, I'm talking tonight about what God's doing in your life. But there does have to be an agreement between you and the Lord. You have to say, by faith, I not only receive the grace of God, but I choose to walk in it. See, if you had no choice in the matter and you were just going to do whatever God wanted you to do, there'd be no need to write all this down. There's a reason you have to be told, be holy. But here's the problem. So often we hear, be holy, and we say, oh, that's a tough task. I don't know if I can do it. No, you can't do it. But if you were crippled today and I said, be healed, or if you said what, what Paul said to that lame man, Rise and walk. Jesus said it too. Peter and John said it. Rise and walk. Do you realize that almost every time Jesus ever healed somebody, there was a command attached to it? Right? He didn't just say, I mean, there were times where that person wasn't present, and he said, like we talked about tonight, and he said, your faith has made this person healed, they'll be healed. But so often he said, get up, make up your bed and walk. Well, why does Jesus care if his bed's made? Why does Jesus care what he does after he's healed? Because there needed to be, there's two parts to this. There's the power of God imparted, but there also needs to be the faith. And faith without works is dead. So this person, this is their point of contact where Jesus says, rise, make up your bed and walk. This person says, I'm going to get up. I'm going to get up off my bed. I'm going to walk. Now, I don't know what it's like to be, to be lame all your life. Well, some people might argue that. They might think I have been lame all my life. But, I mean, crippled all my life. I don't know what that's like. I don't know what it's like. Because, because you know what? When I tell my legs to work, I've, I've had 32 years practicing. I still trip. I still, I, I'm not perfect at it. But I know how to make my legs work. I don't know how it works for a guy who's never walked a day in his life. 
I forgot who was saying this. Somebody said this just the other day. It could have been somebody in the room here tonight. Somebody pointed out that when Jesus healed that man's legs, they didn't start off. He didn't have to start over again with baby legs. You know what I'm saying? He didn't start. You know, our legs have had how many years to develop? When that man said, okay, I'm going to get up and walk, his, his muscles were where he needed to, them to be. But what did he have to do? He had to say, okay, he had to obey. He had no strength to obey, but he had to have the will to obey. Today, here's what God's asking from you. He's not asking for the strength from you. You don't have it. He's not asking for the power from you. You don't have it. What he's asking from you is the will and the obedience. Because if you'll say yes, yes, I will, then God says, well, then I will. By the grace of God, by the word of God, he's already spoken. And when God says be holy, that sounds impossible until you realize it is his working in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The grace of God causes us to be more like him every day. You can get this backwards and get it all twisted. And you can think, if I work a little harder, someday I'll be, I'll be called son. If I work a little harder, if I do a little bit more, someday he'll call me daughter. But that's, that's backwards. Your identity comes first in Christ. The free gift of life, the free gift of salvation came first. And everything else is the fruit of that. So your work, your, 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 your personal holiness in your lifestyle, that is not the root of your salvation. It is the fruit of your salvation. So first you must believe. Now walk out what you believe. I love this because I think holiness is so often motivated by different things. Do you notice that there's really not a lot of encouragement here where he says... Um, be holy because I'm watching you. doesn't say be holy because all your other friends are holy. Why don't you just get on board? He doesn't say be holy because what will people think if you're not? Now, there are scriptures that certainly say it matters that we keep our behavior excellent amongst the Gentiles, that we're a witness for God. But really holiness, this holiness he talks about here is, is grace-fueled, is hope-fueled, is faith-fueled. It is not fueled by what other people think. It's not fueled by how you're comparing with somebody else. You know, I want you to just ask yourself this question. Don't answer it out loud, but just ask yourself. How often do I act the right way for the wrong reasons? How often am I doing the right thing? Because other people are looking, and I know I probably should do the right thing. How many times do I do something because I'm afraid that people will talk bad about me if I don't? So I'm doing this. Now, maybe there's some benefits to doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. I'm sure there are. At least you're not doing the wrong things. But I don't think there's any sustainable life in that. I think, I think you will fail. You'll burn out. I just honestly think you will. I think if, you, I think if, you're, if, if your holiness is not coming out of that reverent fear for God, but rather a panic, a terror, a being scared of something, scared of people or scared of what people will think of you, then that will only give you a little shot for a bit, but it won't, it won't last. I, I, I preached at some communities uh, where they didn't have a regular church. They just kind of had somebody pop up once a summer and preach to them as a group. And, and 
one thing I noticed about a lot of them is that the guys that would come and preach were very, you know, very fire and brimstone, hell, 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 hell. Now, I believe hell needs to be spoken about, but, you know, that was like the thing. And it was always the fear that you, you might be going to hell. You might not know. You never know. We could all be this inches from hell. So you know what would happen is that they'd freak out. They'd come to the altar. They'd cry. And you know what happens? A month later, back in their sin, and they're worse than they were before. You know why? Because fear, that kind of fear, produces a shot of adrenaline. If I, told, if I fired a gun behind you, you'll run across the parking lot at high speed, but you'll be out of breath pretty quick, right? You realize that the gunshot at the beginning of the race isn't to scare the racers so they run? That's not why they're running? Those guys have trained to run. They're running for a prize. They're not running because they're afraid. They're running for a prize. Now, there is probably a fear and trembling in in the sense that they are taking it seriously. But there's a joy in that running. There's a prize in that running. So fear produces a shot of adrenaline, but faith will produce endurance in your life. See, what what does the Bible say when it talks about the great race? It says, fix your eyes on Jesus. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus... And we're not looking at the people who are running a little bit faster, a little bit slower than us. And we're not, we're not looking at the crowd and seeing if mom's approving. We're looking, it's usually, I guess, dad that would be afraid of not, not approving when it comes to a race. We're all different. Let's not get into that. But, you know, we're looking at Jesus. And he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought about at the revelation, revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he says, your hope and your faith are in God. Where your eyes are, it matters. Because if you're looking to the side at who's running and who's running slower, and if am I running as fast as them or am I running faster than them, then you will eventually start running right into them. Where do you need to look? I need to look at the goal. I need to look at the prize. I need to look at Jesus. And I'll run fast. I've had to look at my own life and say, well, you know, when I look at this, he gives me good motivation. Just like uh, when Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 6 about or sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, when he wrote about um, God calling us to be his people and saying, I'll live with you, I'll dwell among you, you'll be my people, I will be my, your God, you'll be like sons and daughters to me. So he says, therefore, because of these promises, come out from them and be separate, and I will be a father to you, and you'll be sons and daughters to me. Then Paul goes ahead and writes, he says, therefore, having these promises, let's cleanse ourselves of all defilement of the flesh. You see, This is a promised-based command where we say, because we're not just being holy for the sake of being better than somebody, we want to be like him. That's going to last. See, if you're living a Christian life and doing nice Christian things because that's what's expected of you, for a while, it'll, it'll work. It wouldn't be as powerful as it could be It won't be as full of life as it could be, but for a while it might look all right. But you'll burn out. There'll be no sustained power. It'll go to the best of your ability, but not beyond your ability. But if I can say right now, I know I don't have the strength to do this, but I know that he does. Lord, you've called me to be like you. Well, that's impossible. So you're going to have to do it. So I'm going to just choose right now then I'm going to submit my actions to you, my day to you, my job to you, my relationships to you. Show me how to live. Live through me. Love through me. 
And watch what happens. When you wake up, say, I'm not just wandering, sleepwalking through life. I'm awake. I'm wide awake. My eyes are open. I'm sober in spirit. My mind is prepared. Now I've fixed my hope on one thing, on Him. I've fixed my hope on Him. I've fixed my hope when, when it seems like all this stuff is crashing, when it seems like the world's going down the tubes, I know this. He's not finished. He will win. He's going to conquer. This is not the, the full story that I see right here. I'm fixing my hope completely on the grace to be brought about at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can be holy. But it's, get it right. Identity first. Who am I? Did I earn that identity? Nuh-uh. I am righteous. I am holy. I am a son of the living God. And all of these things because of the blood of Jesus. Watch. He's framing how you act is all framed because you've been bought. Because you've been purchased with blood that's unblemished. Because you've been born again of an incorruptible seed. Do you realize he's anchoring you to something much bigger than you? He's not just saying, get your act together, you're a bunch of slobs. Get your act together, you're a bunch of sinners. I can't stand being around you. He says, come on, let's be like the one that bought us. We weren't purchased for nothing. We were purchased for something. We were bought back for something. We've been majorly redeemed. We've been preciously bought. And that blood of Jesus has not lost one ounce of power. And that seed that's been planted in us is incorruptible. So even if it's been dormant in your life, it is not dead. Will you wake up, Lord, the things that remain? Would you wake up the things that were about to die and breathe life into them? Because the word of God that's in you is able to cause life to grow in every area. It's incorruptible. Amen? Man, let's do it. Let's just, let's just, I, I think when I read this, I, and I'll close with this thought, when I read this, I look at my motivation. He's telling you what to think about. He's telling you what to look at. He's telling you why you should do what you do. If you can look right now and say, to be honest, I do what I do because, you know, I know what people say if I don't. Or, to be honest, I just do it because everybody else is doing it. That's kind of a recipe for really getting burnt out and for falling short like we always did. Without him, we fall short. But if you'll say, my motivation is that I've been redeemed. My motivation is I'm his child. My motivation is I'm looking forward to his return. My motivation is that I, I'm going to honor and respect and reverence the God who bought me back. And I'm going to live my life as a song to him as an offering to him, and he's going to live it through me. And I guarantee you can do some great things for God, and I'm excited to see it. And I'll be here cheering you on just as the saints in heaven are. So let's stand to our feet, and let's give this to the Lord.